0: I want to invite you to have a seat, and as you do, I want to welcome you. If this is your first time or your, or your uh, second time or any time, I'm just wanting to let you know that I'm glad that you're here. My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here, and generally it's my privilege to open God's Word and to share it with you this morning. All right before we open up to Hebrews chapter 9, I want to invite our, our children, Hubtown kids, to, uh, to make their exit. They don't want to leave. Uh, they're so sad to leave. I, I'm sure you understand why. The little ones this morning in uh, Blue Station, ages 3 to 5, they're going to be learning the story of the forgiving prince. What a beautiful story, especially in as, in, in as much as that story of the forgiving prince images Jesus Christ, our Savior. So they're learning of Joseph and his brothers. But for the Gray Station, they're going to be learning the answer to this question, what is the church? What is the church? And I always encourage you to, to test these children, to grade them. What's the answer? You'll need it. A community elected for eternal life and united by faith, who love, follow, learn from, and worship God together. This is what the church is. That's what we are, brothers and sisters. And as God's church who learn from God together, let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, it'll be on the screen for us this morning. But in addition to it being on the screen, there's a hard black Bible in front of you. You're welcome to use that this morning. And if you do decide to use that, you'll be on page 1192 and 1193. 1192 and 1193. Before we get into the text, I want to just kind of prime the pump by asking you, what comes to mind when you hear this statement, heaven on earth? What comes to mind? Maybe it's a song from the 80s, ooh, heaven is a place on earth. Maybe some of you are too young to remember that song, but you've still no doubt heard it in the the movies and in the aisles as you shop. But what do you consider heaven on earth to be? Maybe it's your favorite meal. Maybe it's a destination. And maybe just overcome with joy, emotion, and pleasure. You've stated at some point in your life, this is heaven on earth. I don't know what comes to your mind, and I'll not tell you what comes to mind, but I want you to see what comes to the mind of the author, the preacher, here in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. I believe really that the topic of what he's talking about today is heaven on earth. So starting in verse 1, let's look at it together. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section Now, these things we cannot speak now in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly. They go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed. Until the time of reformation. This is God's word. There's power in God's word. And so we're going to stop again. We're going to ask God to bless that now. Father, we need your word this morning. We need it. Apart from your word, we don't know anything about you. So little Father, apart from your word and the Spirit applying it, we can't respond with belief, obedience, understanding. And so we just now, as a church, as a body together, pause and demonstrate our need for you, our utter dependence on you. Would you change us through this text this morning? Again, we pray this desperately in the name of Jesus This morning we see in these 10 verses two main structures or two main components. Like the tabernacle, we have two sections in these two verses. The first one, the first section, deals with the first five verses, and that is helping us to understand the parts of the tabernacle, the furniture, the composition that we need to understand. Now, there's far more to understanding. There's far more components to the tabernacle than just what's listed in these five verses. If you were to go through the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you'd learn there's far more given as instructions about this particular tabernacle. But our preacher this morning offers just a little bit as a reminder, sort of hits the high points of the components, and we'll take some time and look through that. But then in verses 6 through 10, we'll step back and we'll say, what do all of these things mean? What do these parts actually accomplish? We'll ask, what's the point? Of the tabernacle and finally as we work through the point of the tabernacle we'll see three truths about God that are pictured ever so clearly in the tabernacle as we look back in history and imagine what it would look like and what it was picturing to accomplish in the future and so that's a little bit of the outline of the morning and then we'll it will end with the main idea which i'll save for then so number one The parts of the tabernacle, looking at verses 1 through 5. Before we actually read anything there, again, I want to just remind you that you are not a 1st century Jew. Maybe some of you are surprised to to hear that, but you're not. You are a 21st century, most of you, Americans. There's a little bit of a gap between the understanding of a 1st century Jew and a 21st century American. And so while the the writer doesn't offer much explanation or commentary on the tabernacle, uh, he knows his audience knows much more than we do. And so we'll spend a little bit more time than he did trying to understand what exactly was in the tabernacle. I want you to know this too. At the time of the writing, the tabernacle was not standing, but the temple was. And we won't go into the history of the transition from the tabernacle, the Jewish tabernacle, to the Jewish temple, or which Jewish temple, but know this, that, that one takes the place of the other. One was a temporary structure. The tabernacle was designed to image a, a heavenly reality, but it was also designed to be transportable. And so the, the Israelites there in the wilderness could take the tabernacle down, and they could move it around. And in fact, that's exactly what took place. But once the people of God conquered the land of Israel, took Jerusalem for themselves, For God, King David, desiring to build a temple, began the process, but then his son Solomon built the first. But we're not talking about Solomon's temple, and we're not talking about Herod's temple, which was standing in the day that Hebrews was written. We're talking about the tabernacle, and that's what's in the mind of the preacher. What does he say about that tabernacle? Let's skip down to verse 2. He says, For a tent, a tabernacle, was prepared. The first, or the first section in that tabernacle involved a few particular pieces of furniture. One was the lampstand. Another was the table of the bread of presence. And those two items were located in the holy place. We're located in the holy place. Now the tabernacle was a large rectangle. The entrance to that tabernacle, or to that rectangle, was pointing towards the east. So you would enter in from the east. Now, you wouldn't do that, but the high priest would on a regular basis. And he would enter into that first section. He would enter in through that first door, that first curtain, and there to his left would be the lampstand. And there to his right would be the table of presence. And not listed in verse 2, but on down in a few verses, out in front of him, right in front of the second curtain to the, to the front, was the altar of incense. And that was the holy place. We'll talk more about holiness in a moment. But when God calls this place the holy place, he's saying this is a sanctified place. This is a different sort of place. This is a special place. This is a place that has been set aside for a particular purpose, and that purpose is the worship of God. Not just anybody could go into this holy place, only priests could go in. Now, what's the purpose of the lampstand? We won't turn there together, but if you're taking notes, you could read this later throughout the week. Maybe with, as your life group uh, kind of works through this passage later in the week today or, or later on. You could write down Exodus chapter 27, verses 20 to 21. I'll read that for you now. Exodus 27:20 20 to 21, speaking of the lampstand, says, You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony. Aaron and his sons shall tend to it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. So there that lampstand there to the left as you walked into the holy place it was to be perpetually lit Now the people of God the Israelites would harvest their their olives they would beat them and that or press them and that first bit that would come off would be the the special amount that that extra virgin that would go straight to the Lord that would be the oil that was used to burn there in the tabernacle and what was the purpose of this Well, in addition to uh, the the lights in your house, your mom lights a candle. And what's the purpose of that? Well, it's not the same purpose as this menorah. It's not the same purpose as this candle. This was the only source of light in this very, very dark room. Aside from that menorah, aside from those candles, the priest would not be able to see what they were doing there in the holy place. So great care was taken to gather up that oil, to store it, and then that the priest would then Fill that lampstand with the oil, keeping it burning forever, so that light could be cast abroad there in that room. Opposite, from the left there to the right, was the bread of presence. But there in the holy place, what do we know about the bread of presence? Well, in Leviticus, chapter 24, verses 8, 9, and 10, what does the scripture say there? Well, every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly, It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offering, a perpetual due. What we understand from this passage here, these few verses, is there on that table, every single Saturday, 12 loaves of bread, fresh bread, were to be placed there on that table facing the north side of the holy place that was the bread of his presence it was not set out to to feed God it wasn't set out to feed Yahweh many other pagan uh, religions and cults would do something like that they would bring sort of food offerings and all sorts of uh, meats and 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 bread and, and and drink and they would put it before the God as if the God needed to drink that and This is not what the purpose of the table of showbread or the bread of his presence was for, unlike those pagan gods. This bread was set out before God to acknowledge that God noticed the 12 tribes and that God sustained them under his watchful eye. The bread was not given to God so that God could eat it. It was given as a representation of their submission to God, their covenant obedience to God. And God then demanded that the priests would eat the bread, and they would do so every single Saturday. That bread would be placed there, and it would be eaten by the priests. That's the composition of the first section. But what about the second section? We see in verse 3 it says, behind the second curtain was a second section. That second section is called the most holy place. It's just like the holy place, but it says it's the holy, holy place. It's already holy, but it's extra holy. Verse 4 says, having the golden altar of incense. In addition to the golden altar, uh, altar of incense, it, it, it held the Ark of the Covenant. That ark was covered on all sides with gold. And inside of that golden ark of the covenant, this box over, wooden box overlaid with gold was a golden urn. And that golden urn was manna. A couple, uh, couple handfuls of manna that God had rained down, providing for his people. And you also had Aaron's staff that budded. That's there in that golden box. In addition to those things, in the ark of the covenant, the box of the covenant, Is the covenant. It's the Ten Commandments. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Two angels facing one another, their wings cast over that mercy seat. And again, he says, of these things we can't now speak in detail. Well, they don't need to speak too much in detail because they already know these things. Every single Jew would know exactly what was in the tabernacle. Would know exactly what was in the temple. And yet for us, we need to spend a little bit more time. And so what's in the holiest holy place? Well, we have the, the golden altar of incense. Now, we will tell you, there's a little bit of confusion here. Because when we read in the Old Testament, we, we understand that the golden altar of incense was actually supposedly located in the holy place, the first section, not the most holy place. Well, there's several ways that we could try to resolve why does the author of Hebrews present that altar of incense on the inside of the most holy place and not the regular just holy place well the idea that i've i've come the conclusion that i've come to and i didn't come up with it myself is that the altar of incense was so closely associated with the most holy place that the writer of hebrews is picturing it almost as a part of pertaining to the most holy place you see on the day of atonement when the high priest, one day a year, would enter into the most holy place, he could not enter into that place without first taking incense off of the altar and bringing it with himself into the most holy place. That was the only way, the initial way, so to speak, that he would be able to enter in. And he would take that, those coals, he would take that incense and he would place it on the mercy seat. And if he did not go with that incense, he could not enter at all. And so I believe it had to do with it was pertaining to the most holy place. What about the Ark of the Covenant? Well, we've talked briefly about the Ark of the Covenant. It's a wooden box, it's overlaid with gold, and inside of it is the very Ten Commandments that God Himself. Gave to man. They're placed inside. In addition to the Ark of the Covenant and the tablets inside, you have the rod of Aaron. This is so interesting. What is the rod of Aaron? The rod of Aaron that budded. Well, God, when he had set up this process, when he had set up the tabernacle, when he had set up this priesthood, this Aaronic priesthood, to proved to the people that Aaron was his chosen line for priesthood. He said that he wanted all of the tribes, all 12, to grab a branch, to grab a staff, a rod, and they were to write the name of their tribe on it. So one for Judah, one for Benjamin, one for Levi, which would be replaced with Aaron. They wrote the name of the tribe there on that rod and they placed it in the tabernacle and the next day God said whichever one has borne a leaf that is the tribe that is to serve me as priests perpetually that line the next day Moses gets the sticks and brings them back out and sure enough one of them has budded but not only has it budded not only has a leaf come off but Aaron's branch actually had almonds born there on the branch the rod of Aaron, signifying to the people of God that God had, in fact, most assuredly chosen Aaron to be a priest serving in the tabernacle. There above all of those items that are located in the ark is the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the lid. The mercy seat is where the blood would be sprinkled. It's where the, the, it's, it, it's where the incense would be placed. It's where atonement where the symbol of atonement would take place. And above the mercy seat would be the Shekinah glory of God. The earthly presence of God pictured there above the ark. If you imagine that. You've got the ark, which contains the law. Above the law, you have the presence of God. Symbolized there in that smoke, and the Shekinah glory of God, actually abiding there. And in between the law and the very presence of God, the blood of that spotless lamb would be sprinkled. It's a powerful, powerful picture. But there above the mercy seat, attached to it, would be those two cherubims. It's so interesting that the two cherubim would be there on the the Ark of the Covenant. This isn't the first time that we've seen two cherubim doing something like this. We see it throughout the scriptures. We see it in Genesis and we see it in Revelation. But it's most interesting that we see the two cherubim guarding the way into the Garden of Eden. When man is removed from the very presence of God, unable to walk with the Lord in the coolness of the day, desiring to enter back in, he can't. Why? Because two cherubim guard the way. Similarly, two cherubim there are on the mercy seat. All of these components, they comprise, at least in part, what is in the tabernacle. And so we see the the parts of the tabernacle there in the first five verses. But what are these parts? What are these components? What is the tabernacle pointing to? And so the second section this morning is the point of the tabernacle. What is the point of all of this? Here we are, 21st century Americans, and we're asking, what does this ancient practice, these ancient rituals and customs given by a holy God to a broken people, what is he picturing here? What is the point of the tabernacle? Well, look with with me at verse six. These preparations having thus been made, what preparations? Well, all of these pieces of furniture, located just the way that they were. When they landed in that new area, they began to set the tent up and God had given them a specific way to set that tent up. They were to set it up in the exact order that he had told them to. All of these preparations thus being made, what would happen next? The priest would go in regularly into the first section on a regular basis. Daily and weekly, they would go in to perform their ritual duties. What sort of duties did they have on a daily basis? Making sure that the lamp didn't go out. Making sure that it was full of oil. Always filling it up and tending to it in any way that it had need. And what about the table of showbread or the table of the bread of his presence? Well, on a weekly basis, going in and placing the bread there. And from time to time, eating some of that bread. That's what was taking place there. Performing their ritual duties. And that was on a regular basis taking place in the holy place. But then verse 7 says, but into the second into the second section, into the second tent, past the second curtain, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year. And he wouldn't go without taking blood. And so he has the incense there that he puts on the altar from the altar of incense on the mercy seat there. In addition to that, he takes the blood of the lamb it's been shed it goes in once a year before that he's made an offering for himself for the unintentional sin, for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people and so the holy place having regular daily weekly duties being performed there the most holy place only yearly once a year what's the point of all this what is god accomplishing or maybe better asked what is he picturing here in these verses and through this tabernacle? Well, first, he's picturing a barrier. Now, I want you to keep in mind, he is not instituting a barrier. He is not placing a barrier. He is picturing a barrier that already exists. Look at verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates, not establishes, indicates, that the way into the holy places which is the very presence of God, it's not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing or what the first section pictures is still standing. During the old covenant era, there existed no means of entrance into the presence of God. None. Not for the ordinary person and not for the ordinary priest. Only the high priest could go And remember, he wouldn't stay very long. We understand that these men had probably bells attached to themselves and a rope to their foot. If something went south, if they tarried too long, which they wouldn't want to do, they could still be drawn back out. There's no safe passage into the presence of God under the old covenant. And the tabernacle is not establishing that. It's not creating a barrier. It's only helping us to see that that barrier already exists. You cannot approach God. You see, had Adam and Eve been able to get back into the garden, so to speak, back into the presence of God, what would have happened? It wasn't God again trying to keep them from something good. It was God protecting them. They couldn't see God. They couldn't be in God's presence still with their sin in their lives and be safe. It would be impossible. And so God in his kindness sets up this barrier. This barrier that or this picture of a barrier that already existed. And that's what the veil symbolizes. That first door, that first entrance into the presence of God, it was blocked. You were unable to enter into that area. And so what we see here, that what's the point of the tabernacle? Well, it's illustrating for us that there is a barrier that's present. But that's not all that the pastor, the preacher, wants us to see. Look at verses 9 and 10. He goes on to say more. Something has to be done in order for us to approach God, right? Well, that's sort of what we see. Verse 9, it says, this first section, along with that first door, that first veil, it's symbolic for the present age. Now, what does he mean by the present age? Is he speaking of the present age that the writer is actually living in? No. That's the day of the temple. What day is he speaking of? He's speaking of the day of the tabernacle, all the way back in the past, hundreds and hundreds of years prior. That's the present age he's speaking of, and it's symbolic of that first covenant instituted by God. And what is it symbolizing? It's symbolizing the entire covenant of God. It's symbolizing the entire old covenant. That first section is a picture. It's a microcosm. It's an icon of the entire Old Testament. Do this, do that, accomplish these things, do them just as God has said, and things will go well. Atonement, or at least a picture of atonement, will be accomplished. You see, the covenant is summarized by that first section, We already know that the temple and the tabernacle were a picture of some other reality, some more greater reality. It's symbolic for the present age, unable to come to God. Now, what is the age that we find ourselves in now? Well, it's the age of the new covenant it's the age that says that's symbolized by the second section that we literally can enter straight into the presence of God just as Christ has done our greater high priest the supreme high priest according to this arrangement it says in verse 9 this old covenant arrangement gifts sacrifices they're offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper they cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In God's kindness, what happened to Adam and Eve there in the garden as they sinned against their God? What happened? In that moment, they knew something. What was it? They knew that they were naked. They knew that they had sinned against God. Their conscience was what? It was marred. It was broken. Guilt overcame them. Shame bound them, and they hid. And now, because of that, a barrier has been placed up. Unable to get back into the presence of God. Guarded by the two cherubim. Unable to enter back in. Their conscience wouldn't let them. They know that they've sinned. It's interesting. New Testament indicates for us that the law, that old covenant, It was a schoolmaster. And what did the schoolmaster help us to do? What did it help us to see? It helped us, it helps us even now to see that our consciences must be bound before a present or a a holy God in his presence. That we can't go to him unless some atonement is made, unless some sacrifice is offered. Our consciences are, bo- are, are torn. One commentator writing of this said, thus, speaking of that outer room, commentating on verse 9, he says, thus the outer room, the first section of the tabernacle, illustrated the inner spiritual condition of the people. He goes on, ultimately the conscience, not a material earthly space, keeps a person from intimacy with God. Consequently, more than the external regulations that dealt with practices regarding food and drink and certain washings would be required to make entrance to the presence of God possible. The present time, the old covenant, mentioned in verse nine, it doesn't mean this present time that we are in, but under that old covenant, our consciences could not be cleared before God. Nothing really would be accomplished Deep down we know that no matter what, without the shedding of the blood of the eternal Lamb of God, there would be no remission for sins. The law teaches us that. The perpetual offerings of each successive high priest teaches us that that there is no blood of bulls or goats that could actually cleanse us from our sin against a righteous, holy God. These routines, they're they're temporary. And they are given, they're in place. This old covenant is put in place until the new covenant system would be established. We saw at the end of chapter 8, and speaking of the new covenant, verse 13, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You'll remember that the tabernacle was replaced with the temple. And then 70 A.D., the great temple, Herod's temple, was destroyed not long after the book of Hebrews was written. And so he's saying it's getting ready to vanish away. It's getting ready to be, it's obsolete now. It's growing old and it will disappear altogether in just a moment. And surely it has disappeared And so what's the point then? Here we are, new covenant people. We're not in the present age, the present age of the old covenant. We are in the age of the new covenant. And so as 21st century Christians, looking there at the first 10 verses of chapter nine, what is it that we can bring out of that that would help us today? What does the Holy Spirit want us to understand in light of this passage? I want to give you three essentials concerning God that we see clearly from this tabernacle. Three essentials concerning God. Here's the first one. God is relational. God is relational. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, we've referenced it several times in the last few weeks. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That was a familiar sight, familiar smells, familiar sensations. And yet this time it was different. Why? Because their consciences were broken and wounded. They were not perfected as they had been before. And they hid themselves. Why? As God approached, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. And they hid amongst the trees of the garden. But verse 9 says something that's so beautiful. It says, but the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? Does God know where they're at? Does he know what they've done? Well, of course he does. But he still comes to them. He's he's coming after them. And he calls out for them. And man responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The tabernacle instructions sort of indicate what we see there in verse 9. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? When we see the tabernacle, when we see God giving the law to man, giving it to his covenant people, we see that man has sinned. He's rebelled against God. And even then, the Israelites there in Egypt, you think that they were these holy people Waiting faithfully for God, and in some ways they were. But in reality, they were almost as pagan as the Egyptians. Unfaithful. And yet, in their sin, God calls to them. He sends a deliverer. He delivers them out. He gives them the law and he teaches them of their sinfulness. He teaches them in his grace of his mercy and his holiness He comes to them, and this is what we see in the tabernacle. Where was God when the Israelites were in Egypt? (laughs) Who knows? The Israelites don't know. Our God is in the heavens. He's not here. He's not with us now. And yet what's interesting is God's presence is symbolized through a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day as they exit Egypt together. As they set up the tabernacle for the first time, the presence of God falls on it like fire. God is saying, I'm not in heaven. I'm not far from you. I am close by. I'm coming near to you. I'm walking. I'm looking for you in the cool of the day, just as I did in the garden. That's what's symbolized in the tabernacle. But why would God do that? Why would God work to create a means for his people to live in intimacy with him because God is a relational God. That's what we see from this passage. You say there's no tabernacle anymore, there's no temple, but we can still learn, you're right, but we can still learn that God is relational, that God wants a relationship with you and he invites you today to come to him. He, He commands you today to draw near to him. Why? Because he's a relational God. He does not need you, but he most assuredly wants a relationship with you. And so we see that God is a relational God. He's inviting us into a relationship. But the relational God of the heavens wants you to have fellowship with him in a way that is consistent with reality. There is a barrier in place. There are certain things that must be accomplished. You cannot accomplish them, but they must be accomplished. They have been accomplished and you must approach God in that way. A relational God though we cut ourselves off from him, he has come to us and he has invited us into himself in a very specific manner. And what do we see about that? Even though the old covenant has been gone, or has been put aside. It's become obsolete. It's passed away and vanished away. We still see that God is a particular God. He's a very particular God. He's particular in the way that we approach him. For levity and for illustration, have you ever gone out to eat with somebody that was really, really picky? You know, it's your time to order and you'll say, I'll take the salmon and the salad. How would you like that? Just whatever way it comes your menu over, and she looks to the person that you're with, and that person begins to lay down the law, much as God did on the Mount Sinai. <laughs> this is how I want it. Not this, not that. If you bring it to me with this on that, I send it back. Maybe in those moments you're a little bit embarrassed. This person is being a bit pretentious. This person is making life difficult, and why would they do that? What's the necessity? What's the point of all of this? Maybe you've approached God in a similar way. Maybe you read the, in your Bible reading plan. You look at the Old Testament, and you get into Deuteronomy, and you get to Leviticus, and you're like, why? What? What's the point of all of these things? Why would God be so particular? Why would he be so meticulous? Why, are, why all these details? Well, we see... That God is not instituting something, but He is illustrating something that's already there. God wants us to see, He's particular in the law because He wants us to understand what's actually happening. That you and your sinfulness could never safely approach God. Never. That's the kind of the intention of the preacher saying boldly come into the presence of God. Why? Because in our right mind, according to the law, we're helped to understand that apart from God's kindness in Christ, that we could never do that safely. Never do that. Remember those cherubims? I always tried to imagine what this looked like. It says they have a sword there in Genesis. It says they have a sword that pointed every which way. What kind of sword is that? It's the kind of sword that you do not want to mess with. It's not safe for us. Why is God particular? Because he is a holy God, and we are a sinful race. And so we have to approach God in the way that he commands. Why? Because that's the only way that's safe for us. That's the only way that's right. And how does he generally, how does he invite us into himself? But in humility. Throughout the scriptures, we see that humility comprised of obedience And forgetting our own selves, surrendering our own wills, that's the way we come to God. We humble ourselves and we draw near to God. And the scripture promises that when we do that, he will draw near to us. He's already taken that first step towards us. He's set up the tabernacle. We can see it and all that it illustrates, all that it teaches us. And God is so particular because he is so holy and he cares for us so, so much. And so we understand by looking at the tabernacle that God is a relational God. He's come to us. He didn't need to do this. He didn't need to set up the tabernacle. He didn't need to give the instructions. We weren't looking for him anyway. And yet we see he's a relational God. He stepped into the darkness, that great light. We also see that he's particular, but not because he just because he can, not because the power has gone to his head, Not because he's self-absorbed, because he loves you and his holiness is so great and your sinfulness is so desperate that he has to be clear with instructions on how you can approach him safely. And so we don't roll his eyes when we consider his particularness. We thank him. Why? Because the third thing that we realize from this tabernacle instruction is that he is holy. And in contrast, we are not when the Bible uh, speaks of holiness, it thinks of it or speaks of it in several different ways. And I want to point out two today. One is uniqueness and the other is cleanliness. So when you see holiness in the Bible, you can see, you can think, well, which is it leaning into? Probably both, maybe one more than the other. Uniqueness or cleanliness. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, this is part of a song that was sung about God. It's a Incredible poem that was written to extol how amazing and unique God is. What has just happened? Well, the children of Israel have literally been sprung out of Egypt. It's impossible, but it's happened. And now they're racing away from their enemy through the middle of two walls of water. And they're running across on dry land. And they get to the other side. Their hearts are beating faster than you could ever imagine. And they fall down in desperation. They fall down exhausted. And what happens as they look behind them and see the army of Egypt descending on them through that same passage they just came? They see God who was holding the waters back release them. And in a way that no other God, army, deity, people group has ever done before. They destroyed an army. They destroyed a nation. And what do they sing when that's all said and done? <laughs> Who is like you, God? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? There's no one like you. You're majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, and you're doing wonders. We've literally never seen anything like that before. We've never even heard of anything like that. There are no other gods, and there's lots of them in Egypt. There's none of them that can do anything like this. And so when the Israelites sing that God is majestic in holiness, they're saying he is so unique. There is nothing like him. Absolutely nothing. And that's what the tabernacle is telling us. That's what the tabernacle is telling us, that there's no other God like your God. There's no other God like Yahweh. He is utterly unique in holiness. But there's also this aspect of holiness that's cleanliness or purity. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 11, verses 44 and 45, this is what the scriptures say. Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Do you see the context here is consecrate, set yourself apart. These aren't the ordinary dinner plates. These are the special, consecrated, set apart, holy and clean and pure, dedicated wedding plates. What does he say? You shall not defile yourself With any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am Yahweh who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. We think of the holiness of God, think of the cleanliness of God, think of the purity of God. And when we say cleanliness, when we think of cleanliness, it's not, hey, uh, getting the dirt underneath your fingernails, and after you've worked on the car, getting the grease stains off with, with rubbing in some Dawn in there. That's not what he's talking about. It's a moral purity, it's a righteousness that's unlike anything else you've ever seen. Totally different than the so called righteousness that you manufacture. And that's, that's what's pictured in the tabernacle. Clean this, clean that, purify that, consecrate this. Don't do this if it's not clean, if it's not perfect, it ain't right. Why would God do that? Why, why, why is He so particular? Why is He so meticulous? Because He is so holy. You could never come up with this sort of holiness on your own, not in a million years. It's a transition, though. Leviticus eleven forty four and 45 says, Be holy. Be pure, be clean. Why? Because I'm clean. There's literally a special bathtub for the priests. They can't even go into the holy place until they scrub and purify themselves and do all these certain things before they even go into it. It's not just like your mom says, wash your hands before you make a sandwich or did you wash your hands as they put their hand in that bag of potato chips. Okay, those are yours now. It's, it's far different than that. And Jesus is saying, or God is saying, be holy as I'm holy. And that's exactly what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. There in the New Covenant, the New Testament, he quotes the Old. Why? Because God of the Old Testament is holy. And the God of the New Testament, by the way, is still holy. Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Pictured in the tabernacle is the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. That's so clear. And by the way, now here in the New new Covenant era, we might say, well, has God's holiness weakened? Has our sinfulness been done away with? Not in the slightest. God is still holy, more than you can imagine, and you are more sinful than you could ever think. And so what sort of solution have we found in the New Testament? Jesus is still looking at you and he's saying, just like in the Old Testament, you cannot approach God unless you are holy, unless you are perfect. I love what one philosopher said, one of my favorites. He said this, speaking of Jesus, this particular quote here in Matthew 5, 48, he, Jesus, never talked vague, idealistic gas. When he said be perfect, he meant it. He meant that we must go in for the full treatment, though. It is hard But the sort of compromise we are all hankering after is harder. In fact, it is impossible. It may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. That is difficult. It would be a jolly sight harder for it to learn to fly while remaining an egg. We are all like eggs at present. You cannot go on indefinitely being just an ordinary decent egg. We must be hatched or go bad. Here's the problem. Each of us have been commanded to be holy. Each of us now in our sinfulness like an egg, unable to fly, and yet we're still commanded to fly. Something's got to take place in your life. Something has to change. There has to be a transformation. You cannot fly as an egg. That's far harder than transforming from an egg to a bird. And yet, in the new covenant, we're not just told to be holy. We're not just told to be perfect. We're not just commanded to fly. We are promised that we will be transformed. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead. We'll be raised from being just a flightless egg to a bird that can soar just as we have been commanded by our creator don't forget, Hebrews chapter 8 said that they, the priests, the furniture in the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself, it serves as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. It's only a shadowy copy. It's only a picture. It's only an illustration. We started the time this morning by asking the question, what comes to mind when you hear heaven on earth? Maybe you would be willing to answer the question, is heaven on earth? Well, in some ways, no, absolutely not. What we see here in this life, what we see even in the tabernacle is not heaven down on earth. What we see in the tabernacle is a picture of heaven coming down to earth. It's not on earth, but it's a foretelling that it will one day be on earth. And that's what we see in John 1. Verse 14, and the word became flesh. The testimony of God, the promise of God became flesh. The covenant, the old covenant that was pictured, everything in the tabernacle, it actually became real. In who? Where? (laughs) In the first century. In Nazareth. There was a man named Jesus who was the Christ. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. And by God's grace, brothers and sisters, 21 centuries later, we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen the Shekinah glory, not in some old covenant tabernacle, but in flesh, in the new tabernacle, in the body, in the person of Christ. There's so much pictured in the tabernacle that's fulfilled in Christ. We'll only look at a few this morning and that briefly. Think of the bread of the presence. What does Jesus say in John 6? I am the bread of life. What does he say in John 8? He says, I am the light of the world. What does he say in John 10? He says, I am the door. He's not a veil, he's not a wall. He's a door. He's a way to go through. He's an access point. That's what's so weird about a veil. That, that great thick veil, how almost impossible to get through. I feel sorry for the priest that would have to pass through that veil. Jesus is not a veil, he's a door. He's the way that we access God. And that's the main idea that's the main idea and it's not too dissimilar from all the other main ideas that we've seen in Hebrews they're all basically the same thing jesus is better but the main idea today god has come near inviting us to approach him in a very specific way according to his holiness he's come near in his mercy, and he's invited us to approach him in a very specific way, not a meticulous, pretentious way, but in a way that is consistent with the bear that's between us, which is the disparate values of his holiness and our sinfulness. He's come near to us. We sin, we run, we cut ourselves off from God, God comes near communicating love and mercy And the question is, how will you respond to this main idea this morning? God coming near and inviting you to approach him in a very specific way according to his holiness. How will you respond? There's so many of us here this morning coming from different places, different backgrounds, different sins, different levels of sinfulness. But each of us broken, unable to come to God. And he's inviting us in in a very specific way and some of us are responding with fear. Some of us are saying, I'm too afraid to come to you. Your holiness, I got the picture. Your tabernacle got it loud and clear. In my mind, I am unable to come to you. I'll stay away. I'm too afraid. I'm going to stay in the bushes. I'm still sowing some leaves up. Maybe one day, not today. Maybe one day I'll come to you, but now is not the time. John chapter 3, verse 17 says to you this morning, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Some of you are so afraid to come to God this morning, but you've got the picture that Jesus, that God is holy and that you're sinful and you better not try to come by yourself. You better not try to come in your own. But God didn't send his son into the world to condemn you. He sent his son into the world that you could be saved through him. Why the tabernacle at all? It's not for condemnation. It's a schoolmaster. It's not setting up a barrier. It's telling you about the barrier that's there and the one who will come and fulfill everything that needs to be accomplished. We have no need for fear. We have no need for fear. Some of you approach God or don't approach God because of it. Another uh, way that we respond is to redefine we redefine. We say, well, that was the old covenant. This is the new covenant. Let me define the new covenant for you this morning. The new covenant says that in the Old Testament, God was a holy God and we were sinful. But in the new covenant, it says that God just doesn't care anymore. We're not been, we've not been given the right to redefine. The old covenant is not actually obsolete in the sense that it's thrown away. It's obsolete in the sense that it's been fulfilled in the new covenant. And so we don't get to redefine, redefining this stuff looks like this. God, if I come to you at all, I'll approach you the way that I think you should be approached. If I were God, this is how I would want to be approached, and so this is how I will approach you, God. That sounds kind, sounds thoughtful and wise, but it's incredibly foolish for us to redefine the terms us to try to approach God on the path that we would like to approach him on the scripture warns you this morning I don't care how old you are young or old I don't care what generation you are we cannot redefine the terms that God has given to us in order to approach him we already referenced this a moment ago John 10 7 says what Jesus said to them truly truly I say to you I am the door Are there any other ways to get in? No. You try to get in any other way, you're a thief and a robber. How do we come to God? The exact precise way that he has said for us to come to him. He is the door. We come through him. He is the high priest. He is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Not you. And by the way, you cannot come to God unless some lamb has taken away your sins. And there's only one lamb that can. Redefinition won't do cast fear aside and forget your definitions come to god the way that he has said the way that he has provided in his kindness there's no other way and i get i get it it will take humility but that's the only way to come to god to say i can't do it i can't define it i'm not smart enough i'm not strong enough i'm not holy enough but jesus you're all those things and more i'm going to come through the way i'm going to come through the door Related to redefinition is rebellion. That's another way that you want to respond. That's another way that I want to respond. What right does God have to impose anything on me? How dare you call me a sinner? How dare you say that I need to do this or that, or that I'm not complete in and of myself? Today's culture loves this line. We love this response, and yet we always have. Romans 14, 11 says, God speaking, uh, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. You can rebel all that you want. I remember hearing a story of Shirley MacLaine, and many of you don't know that, and she's not my aunt, standing on the beach, yelling out, I am God. God up in heaven and he hears, You can say what you want to say. You can think what you want to say. You can try to usurp power over God, but it it definitely, it never works. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall confess to God. That poor lady has come to the realization that she will too bow. She will too confess Another response to the holiness of God, to the pathway that God has declared that we approach him is skepticism. We feel things like this. We think things like this. We can't really be sure of his goodness, let alone his existence, so does any of this even matter? We can't really be sure of his goodness, let alone his existence, so does any of this really matter? Skepticism. Psalm 53, verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That fool that says there is no God, he is corrupt, he's doing abominable iniquity, and there is no one who does good. Skepticism. Skepticism looks to God and says, does he really exist? I don't think so. And I want to warn you, atheism, skepticism really, is a mingling of rebellion and skepticism, and yet you pass it off as if it's only intelligent skepticism. Do you get that? Atheism is 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 a mingling of rebellion and skepticism. It's a lack of faith and a lot of rebellion. That's what it says here. The fool says in his heart there is no God, but the person who says that is corrupt, not just in his thinking, but in his morality. He does not want to submit to God, and so he doesn't, and he passes it off as if he's just too smart to believe it. Each and every one of us, as we doubt, really, that doubt is supported by our rebellion against God. Even within the heart of the Christian, though, there are varying degrees of skepticism. Yeah, I know he said that, but does that really apply to me? He he did say, yes, I know, he said that every sin that we confess, he will forgive. If we come to him humbly, he will accept us and not cast us out. I know that he said that, but is that really true of me? Does he? Does he, are you, do you know how sinful I really am? Or maybe you're skeptical when you think, I know that he says that he's not forgotten me, but I feel forgotten right now. I know that he says that he is the door and that I can enter through, but I feel like the door's been shut and I'm unable to enter. You see, all of these responses, skepticism, rebellion, redefinition, fear, and all a myriad of others, they're all missing the mark. A.W. Tozer, writing along these lines, he said, Much of our difficulty stems from our unwillingness to take God as he is and adjust our lives accordingly. We insist upon trying to modify him and bring him nearer to our own image. Think about that. Much of our difficulty stems from our unwillingness to take God as he is and adjust our lives accordingly. We insist upon trying to modify him and bring him nearer to our own image. Church, what can we gather? What can we gain from considering the tabernacle? Well, we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything promised in the tabernacle. He's the light, He's the bread, He's the door. He's the way to be purified. He's the incense offering rising up to God. He's the good shepherd that lays down his life for his sheep. He's the fulfillment of everything pictured in the tabernacle. And so what are we to do? Well, God has come near. That's the main idea. God has come near and he is inviting us to approach him in a very specific way. That specific way is through his son. And I pray this morning that in a real way, if you've never done that before, that you will today approach God through his son. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you this morning that even though the tabernacle and all the things symbolized there, all the requirements of the tabernacle, even though that has become obsolete, we thank you that it still preaches today. It still speaks a word. Now, we know that Christ, Jesus the Son, he speaks a better word. And yet we still are able to see from the tabernacle that you are a God who loves. You are a God who is relational. You're pressing in. Father, would you help us to believe that this morning? Father, would you help us to believe that that you are a God that is particular but not pretentious? You are a God who is, in, 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 its, in his kindness, giving us the exact way to come to you. We celebrate that. And God, we thank you that you as displayed throughout the tabernacles pictures and parts, that you're a holy God. But you've not left us without an ability to enter into your presence, but that through your Son, we can enter boldly. That's what we're doing right now. God, I pray that each of us put aside fear, skepticism, rebellion, redefinition, and the like, and that we would enter into the holy place this morning, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 1,000th time, but, Father, may what will happen for all of eternity begin this morning for someone, that we enter into your presence boldly because of what Jesus, the Lamb of God, has accomplished for us. We love you, we thank you for these truths and we ask it all in the name of Jesus, amen.